0: So we are here for our, evening, our Sunday evening Bible study. We've come in the Revelation to chapter 3 and verses 7 through 13. We're going to look at the sixth church, which is the church at uh, Philadelphia. What to look for in a good church. You know, you hear people say, oh, that's a good church. Well, what is there about a good church uh, from, from the very report of Christ himself? I say that because um, because Christ has nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia. It's it's all it's all praiseworthy. So this in the, by the very report of Christ Himself, this is a good church, a good church. What are the characteristics? And dear Lord, when we study what the characteristics are, let us. Be a good church. Let us, by your own definition, be a good church. This is the church at Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia was about uh, 25 to 30 miles southeast of Sardis, which is where uh, one of the other churches was. The The thing about the, the church at Philadelphia is that it was strategically located in... Uh, in the most important uh, crossroads among the most important crossroads in the roman province of uh, of of the provinces actually the, the crossroads brought together the roman provinces of mysia lydia and phrygia now it was founded during uh, during the greek empire this this city and strategically founded here at this crossroads to propagate the Hellenistic Greek culture and language to the world. And, And namely, if it was Hellenistic, of course, it would also have to do with Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all those guys. And it would have been under the direct influence of Alexander the Great because as much as being a great campaigner of wars and builder of the empire... He also was a missionary for Greek Hellenistic philosophy and the culture of Hellenism and the language, the, the Koine Greek language uh, that our New Testament is given in. So here at this crossroads, the intent of the city of Philadelphia, being there, was that it would serve to carry the to carry Greek Hellenism from this cultural center. At these strategic crossroads, out from those crossroads into the rest of these Roman provinces uh, in that part of the world, so it was considered by the ancients as the gateway to the world uh, back in that time, especially in the time of the Greeks. Now, it's an interesting fact that the the church at Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, was founded. The city is founded on a fault line. Of course, people couldn't have known that kind of thing back then until they started having earthquakes all the time. So the city was subjected to frequent earthquakes and volcanic activity. Whenever uh, a tremor would strike the city, a lot of the city, because of the way they built things back then, a lot of the city would crumble. When they felt the initial tremor, the city's population would run out into the countryside and escape as far as they could into the countryside so that so that none of the structures there in the city would would fall on them, and then after a while, when all was clear and the tremors had stopped, they would come back in, and then they would have to start they'd have to start the process of of rebuilding the city, and that happened really frequently, quite often. Philadelphia is the youngest of these seven cities of the seven churches. It was. Uh, It was in a fertile area, which in a volcanic area, it would be fertile, and their main thing there to grow was uh, grapes in in the vast vineyards of the area of Philadelphia. So the grape growing industry was very significant, which meant that wine and making wine was very significant, and therefore, they had a significant temple to Dionysius, the god of wine. Uh, they're in Philadelphia, so okay. A city that was prone to earthquakes, where people had to flee and then come back, flee and come back, run out, come back, run out, come back. Buildings would collapse and then rebuilt, be rebuilt, except the strongest structures would remain, and uh, whatever was built was built around that. So you keep that in mind when we look at the scriptures here with regard to the city. So let's look down. At uh, verse seven and the beginning of verse eight, uh, in uh, let's see, we're in the Revelation chapter three, okay? Uh, and I still had my Greek text from Galatians, but I'm in the Revelation now, chapter three, and let me find what would be verse seven. All right, and to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. Write, write these things, Philadelphia, Phileo Adelphos. It's the city. It's brotherly love. Um, it's it's so naturally the the city is known as the city of brotherly love. The name Philadelphia means brotherly love. Write these things, says, says the holy, and. The true having the key of David, um, the one opening and no one will shut, and shutting and no one opens. And so it's a key that has to do with opening and closing gates or doors. And that key of David is in is it belongs to the Christ of God. And he is the holy and the true. We'll pick up on that in a minute, but let me go on here. No one will shut and shutting no one will open. No one opens. All right. And then the first part of the next piece here. I know your deeds. Look, I have set before you a door having been opened. Which no one, which no one and no one or which no one is able to shut it. Now, let's think about that. Again, Jesus introduces himself in a way that relates Him re- relates who he is to the church. And we also have now another, a broader uh, introduction of who Christ is, so we have more characteristics. Remember, the whole book is the unveiling of Christ. And so every time he speaks of himself... He's showing us a different thing about himself, making sure that by the hand of the inspired disciple uh, apostle, it is recorded in the canon of Scripture, which will close the Scripture, which is going to be, which is going to be the finality, uh, the finality of telling us of the greatness of the Christ of God as far as we can receive it. Now there's, there are great things about God that I'm not sure eternity we will ever be able to absorb in all of eternity but he expands our knowledge a little bit more of him. He is the holy and the true. Let's look at the language here. Of course, uh, the, uh, the holy takes us back to the, how, they, how the demons recognized Christ in the gospels, the holy one of Israel. Okay, so that's the, the God, very God of very God. And then he says, Ha'alethenos, the true, the genuine, uh, the real as as con as contrasted um, as contrasted with that which is not real, with the counterfeit, the truth, the, the truth maker, um, the one who is true. Let's let's think about what this means, all right? He is the holy and the true. John, who is writing the Revelation here, also wrote much earlier in his gospel that that the Christ of God is the Word. And he said in verse 14, he is full of grace and truth, John chapter 1. And that word truth, it's it's a form of this word here, true, the true. Or I suppose you could translate it, the Holy One, the true one. He is the Word Keeper. He is the real thing. He is holy, true, Almighty, and He has in His He has in His possession the key of David. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament and get a and and get a description of that, it's back in Isaiah twenty-two somewhere along in there. You will learn that this key was the key that 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 gave access to the treasure. Of Israel so here in the true the holy and the possessor of the key of David we have here a description that depicts further depicts the deity of Christ the holy One of God the holy one in his holy temple the the word keeper the genuine word the true one the truth that speaks of his word of course the word the um, And so Christ reminds the Philadelphians here that they were not wrong in putting him first. And we'll see why that's important when we go on down here in in, in the later verses here. Because Christ, in his introduction of himself, is, is teaching them and telling them that the one for whom they are diligently working, the one whose interests they had put ahead of their own interests, is God. God manifest in the flesh, the Christ of God, the Holy, and the True. That's how he he describes himself here. The one who is manifest, the deity who is manifested in the person of Christ. You know, it's easy to say no uh, to demands upon our time and energy in a lot of different ways, but how can you say no to God? It's just, that's the, this, he is, he is God. He is the true, the real, as opposed to the unreal, uh, the true and living God. He's the real thing, the way, the truth, the life. That's who he is when I look at the, when I look at the words here. Um, so has the key to the treasure. Now a key is the symbol of authority and uh, he uses his key to open and shut Doorways or pathways or doors in the context doors of opportunity doors of service now keep in mind that uh that this uh this this city is located strategically at these very important crossroads leading into those three major provinces of the Roman Empire, and the crossroads were designed to carry greek hellenic philosophy and culture and the language into the major population areas out from philadelphia and this is where christ this is where christ has put this church i have put you in a strategic place at the crossroads of the ancient world you have a door here people are coming and going all the time from all over the world And the reason that this place was was founded was so that that ideas and what they consider to be truth, these things could be exported out to the rest of the world. So Christ would say to this church, look, I have put before you, I have opened this opportunity uh, before you. I have done this for you. I have, I have placed before you an open door, an open door. So, if he is the holy and the true, we have to be cognizant and and attentive uh, to his to his direction. Let me go back in that verse again. Uh, the next verse, which would be verse eight. I know your deeds. Look, I have set before you a door having been opened, which no one is able to shut it. <laughs> okay. Nobody can close the door of opportunity to a church when a church has that opportunity. Nobody can open it but Christ. Nobody can close it but Christ. Christ. A door of missions, a door of evangelism, a door of Bible teaching, a door of disciple making, a door of opportunity given by Christ and none other can give it. So the opportunities that churches have come from above, come from the Christ of God. Then he says an interesting thing here. He says, I have said, which no one's able to shut it, because, because you have small power. Uh, you have little power. Now, what does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. It can be relative. It's It's mainly, of course, relative to the power that we have with Christ, Christ gives us all power, but all, all we don't Christ has all power; he'll do whatever he wants to do, but I think it also it also speaks of you have little power macron uh is the Greek word there little macron, and we've heard a lot about microns lately, you know how 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 good your face mask has to be so that microns can't, any bigger than such a size, can't get through it, whatever. Well, this is where that word comes from. You have small power. You don't have much. So you have this place right now. You have this door of opportunity right now. And you have what you have. Nobody nobody is able to shut the door because you have little, small power, but, and yet, even though I would say, Christ would say, even though you have this small power, yet you have guarded my word. You have, a, you have kept as a sentinel, you have guarded my word and have not denied my name. So this church, this is a good church, because it it understands the deity of Christ, it understands the truthfulness of God's word from from having from reading what we've already studied here. Um, it also is given an opportunity and understands the opportunity comes from Christ, and and that the real power is with Christ and and not with ourselves. And the church obviously is not guilty of questioning or or, or repudiating. Or uh, denying or distorting or ignoring the Word of God, and neither does it deny the name of Christ. You've not, not denied my name. Now a church that denies the Bible will not be long before it denies Jesus. Jesus Christ will not open doors of opportunity will, will not open doors of opportunity for churches who deal lightly, with his word or who don't understand his great power and authority over the church. I, I would go as far as to say there are no great, vibrant, growing, evangelistic, outreaching, soul-stirring, earth-shaking, Bible-thumping, whatever, churches where the Bible is denied or even doubted. You won't find it in those kinds of churches. God just doesn't honor that. That's what Christ is essentially saying here. And when it when he says here, you have guarded my word, it means that intellectually and every other way, the word has been kept, regardless of what anyone else may do to attack the word. It has been guarded by this church. It's been guarded intellectually. It's been guarded affectionately, and it has been guarded Practically. Now, implied here is the understanding that the Philadelphian church studied the Bible, read it, taught it, proclaimed it, and that the the church at Philadelphia, implicit here would be that this church stood against all who would deny its truth, its validity, its importance, And who would deny the name of Jesus? That's going to, to deny his name is going to mean more to us here in just a second uh, when we get down to that part. But the Philadelphian saints just simply could not agree with the world or even the synagogue of Satan. They could not agree that Jesus was any less than God in the flesh. Can't agree with that. Somebody comes on, Jesus, just a man, just a prophet. He is a good man, boy, he's a great guy. Very strong prophet, Kenton. If he is anything less than God in the flesh to you, I can't fellowship with you as a Christian. This is essentially the stand that uh, the Philadelphians had, had taken here. And a good church really is, is not that seriously affected by opposition. Boy, when you know what you stand on, you're just not going to be moved. It doesn't matter what the opposition says or does. Now, just like in Smyrna, Judaizers—we we talked about this this morning in our study in Galatians. Judaizers were working very hard during that day in Philadelphia to make Christianity a Jewish sect. Now, we talked—I talked a lot about that uh, this morning. But look at uh, look at this verse here. Um, You've not denied my name. Look, I give those from the synagogue of Satan, those declaring themselves to be Jews and are not, but they lie. So here are these Judaizers coming in, still dogging the church, even in the late day of uh, of, of John, uh, the revelator here. And they are still trying to Judaize the church even to the point of obviously denying the name of Christ and his deity because that's how he introduces himself to the church. Here he says, they're not Jews, they're liars. Behold or look, I will cause them that they will come and worship before your feet and they shall know that I have loved you. They'll know this. That's a, that's that's a statement that tells us that Christ controls worship. I mean, I'm going they'll come in, they'll come and in, and in, in worship. They will come and worship before your feet. They will know that I have loved you, that God in the flesh. No less than God in the flesh is the one who has loved you. Now let me look at these next uh, part here, next couple of verses, I guess. Because you have guarded the word of my, because you have guarded the word of my, the word of my patient endurance, huh? My patient waiting, because you have. Guarded the word of my patient waiting. I will also keep you out of the hour of the trial being about to come upon the whole inhabited world to try those dwelling upon the earth. Now, let's look at the language to understand this. First of all, understand that this is the sixth of the seven churches. I haven't gotten into it that much as we've gone through these churches. I could go back and make a sub-study of the seven churches, which to me at this point in the history of the church, I believe the evidence is in favor of something else in addition to the fact that these are conditions of of churches at any time and so forth. But it also, in my view, is representative of the seven churches ages of the church, the seven historical eras of the church. Now the Philadelphian church is the church of uh, what I would say is the church of the great reformation where people begin to send out missionaries and they begin to proclaim the gospel because they've been set free from Romanism and they've been set free from enslavement uh, and and papery, uh, popery, and all that, and all that kind of, and all that kind of stuff. They've been set free from that. So they're they're going and so Christ says I'm going to put you in a strategic place now. In my view, we're in the we're in the closing time of the Philadelphian age and the and the and the beginning the very beginning as Philadelphia closes the very beginning of the Laodicean age, which is an awful time. Now, here's why I say all that, because I look at the language here. They'll know that I've loved you. So Christ does something to prove his love for his real church. You have guarded the word of my patient waiting. You and I live since the day of Pentecost We live in a time where the Lord is calling out Gentiles as well as Jews, but Israel is laid aside for the moment, Romans Romans 9, 10, and 11, and those, those who are of Israel who are saved during this time of the church are saved like we are, and there is a remnant of Jewish people who are coming to Christ. Messianic Jews, they're coming to Christ, so So they hadn't been left out and there's not a gap that leaves them out of salvation. The remnant is still there. But this is a time where God is gathering Gentiles to himself. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. But the time of the Gentiles will find its fulfillment. It will come to an end when the last of the Gentiles in the time of the church is, is called out. To the Lord and the church is completed in a way and at a time known only to the Father, so the son is preparing a place this this goes back to the traditional Jewish uh, marriage traditions um, the betrothed there would have been arrangement and an arrangement and the father of the son would have accepted. And so this betrothed, this impending bride would be a special gift from the father to the son. And the son would have to prepare a place for him and his bride to live. And it would be a part of his father's house. So he could have, when at at the appropriate time, he could have said to his betrothal, to the one who was, to whom he was betrothed or who was betrothed to him, he, w- he would say, let's, let's confirm this and they would do so. He would come at, at, the time, at the appropriate time seated at a table with with the one he hoped would become his bride seated over there with her father and he would pour a cup of wine and he would push it into her presence. Now, there had, other arrangements had been passed but now... Is she going to hook into this? You know, that's sort of the way this is. If she'd picked that goblet up and took a sip of the wine, that was saying to the young man, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. This is good. I'll do it. If she pushed it back, she would say, I'm I'm not interested in this. So here she, she takes a sip and here's what he would say. He would say, I go to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And If I do this, I am coming back for you. You won't know when and I won't know when until my father tells me it's ready. But I will keep working on this and working on it and and I will be furnishing it and doing all that I need to do. And my father will inspect it and at the appropriate time, my father will say, all things are ready, son. Go And get your bride. And she had to be ready waiting for him whenever. So he'd get all of his troop together and they'd start going to get his bride and bring her back. Now here's the point. He has been preparing this place for these thousands of years. And very soon, that's why Christ would say, I don't know, only my father knows. Somebody would come by and see this young man building onto his father's house. They'd say, when's the big day? I don't know. You're going to have to ask daddy. Only my father knows. So the time comes, the father sends the son to retrieve his bride. And he brings her back. But she has to stay ready. She has to keep watching for him. She... She has to guard his word to know that he is patiently waiting until the father sends him to get her. And she keeps that word. He's coming. I know he's coming. Now for all these thousands of years, Christ, the father, has been giving the son his gift of the church. The son sends forth the Holy Spirit and Gentiles are being gathered until finally the last one of us is saved. The the apostles in the book of Acts, in in the first part of the book of Acts, they said, well, now, but just before Jesus ascended, now is the time you're going to restore the kingdom. It's not for you to know. It's for my father to know. This is not, well, they were anxious for it. And the church ever since, the real church ever since has been anxious, has been anxious for Christ to come for us. Generations have come and gone. One of the greatest, one of the greatest preachers of the second coming of Christ was my daddy. One of his, just about his favorite subjects were the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. And oh, he preached on it so much. And he went to his grave, age 86, in 2002, yet still believing that Christ was coming for him before he died. And I'm no different. And yet the world is so much different now. Generation after generation, Christ has given us the promise. But we also know that a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And that the time will come. And so here's the church that has guarded the word, guarded the word of his patient waiting. Patiently waiting for the time when he can come and get us. How about that? This is what he promises to the Philadelphian age, you see, and to the church at Philadelphia. And here's why we know this comes to the close of the age. It speaks of the close of the age because he says next, he says, and I will also... Guard you, keep you out of. Ech, Ek. ektes horas, out of the hour. Now, you know, if it if the word horas, if the word hour wasn't in here in the Greek text, we could sort of generalize this thing. But the word's there. So he speaks of the hour of the trial being about to come upon the inhabited, upon the... The whole, upon the whole inhabited world to try those dwelling upon the earth. Now, let me talk about earth dwellers. I use that phrase a lot. In the book of the Revelation, 11 times in nine verses, the phrase, those dwelling on the earth, is used. And it is always used of those Deniers, those lost folks in the tribulation. They would not believe, they would not believe. Those dwelling on the earth and they would not believe. This happens, those dwelling on the earth and they would not believe. It is a, it is a phrase that references people in the tribulation who refuse to believe. They're earth dwellers. That's what I call them, earth dwellers. Here's what Christ promises. There's about to be a trial come upon the whole inhabited world. But I'm going to guard you and keep you out of the hour of that trial. And it's going to try all of those dwelling upon the earth. He promises the rapture to the believing church before that hour of trial falls upon the whole inhabited earth. And he goes on and says, I'm coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Taku. taku. I'm coming with rapidity. Rapidly. What he's saying is, he's saying, once these things, and he's obviously referencing all the all of the end time things that are going to be written about in the in the rest of the revelation that we're going to get to, God willing. When these things start happening, they're going to happen just like this. One right after the other. Then he says, next, he says, uh, seize, seize that to which you have, to what you have. Seize that. It's a some articles in the neuter. So seize, take your strength and hold it To what you have, so that no one may take your crown. The last days, the last days are going to find saints of God tempted into tomfoolery, spiritual tomfoolery. You have a special gift, a special resource. There is a crown. There are various kinds of crowns. Don't let anybody interfere with your work as a Christian, not even in the last days. The victor or the one victorious, the overcoming one, I will make him a pillar, a pillar in the temple of my God. Tremors of an earthquake would come into Philadelphia. Remember how we started this out? The people would run out, but then they would have to come back in. Pillars would be left standing. Less structures of less strength would have crumbled in the earthquake. But the pillars would have been left standing. Well, there are pillars in the temple of God and (laughs) the saints of God are just as strong as those pillars. They won't fall. We will not fall. Then he says, and he shall, and this is in the double negative, ume exelte eti. Kai And he shall not ever go out anymore. Remember the Philadelphians running out and then coming back, running out, coming back. Won't happen to you, Christ says. Not anymore. I'll keep you from the hour of trial. Nothing will shake you. Nothing can harm you. I will keep you from all that. You'll be as strong as a pillar in the temple of my God and you will never have to run away from anything ever again. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. The new name of the Christ of God. We will be beyond seeing him then as just Jesus of Nazareth. And I have, I just use online stuff now and mostly just the languages, but I had in my library before I boxed it all up, I had over 4,000 volumes. And there were hundreds of those. Well, practically all of them had some study about it, but I probably had hundreds of volumes just doing and dealing with the person, ministry, and name of Jesus. <laughs> and we still are studying the work, person, name, ministry of Jesus, whose name means Jehovah saves. And we'll never exhaust that when he gives to us and writes upon us his new name. Man, it'll take a million years or more to just begin to study the great deep meaning of his new name. The one having an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to be like Philadelphia. That's what we want to be like. Those characteristics, those things, that's what we want to be like right there, Philadelphia. And we want to be that church that's caught away by Christ, kept from the hour. Trial. Mm. Let's pray. Father, so much to think about here, Lord. So much to be joyful about. Lord, are these the last days? Prepare us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed to the skies looking for and hoping for and praying for the soon return of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.